afternoon. I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on this week's show, sticky yeast, picky crabs, and poisonous frogs. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. John Brinster, who will discuss Einstein's theology. Plus the Grokton 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. Coming right up here on the Berkeley Grok Science Show. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Wow, pretty Christmassy, actually. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's the the mood is in the air. I'm I'm feeling like Santa Claus has come by and sat on my stomach and rubbed your tummy. Yeah, you know, well, that's what Santa does <laughs> for a price, usually twenty bucks, <laughs> and then a couple extras you get to go to the private room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that kind of Santa, yeah. the secret Santa. Right? Yes, yeah, well, yeah, secret Satan's even better. <laughs> Watch out for little victims. Yeah, well, I, yeah, apparently I've had too much eggnog already. <laughs> so, it seems like you have a particular taste. When it comes to dating, are you picky, Charles? I, I guess not, since I prefer mammals generally. Oh, wow. <laughs> Humans specifically, but... <laughs> Pretty easy going there, I guess. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm broad-minded, pun unintended. <laughs> so it turns out this crab, the California fiddler crab, is one of the pickiest mate choosers in the world. Oh, really? Yeah. So it just only uh, mates with other crabs that are particularly fetching? This is on the female side, they only mate crabs which are particularly big, uh, which means they'll usually uh, check out up to a hundred other males. The they, obvious comment here is that size does matter. In <laughs> <laughs> fact, it's for their own survival, actually. All right. So what they'll do is they'll check out the crab, and in fact, in many cases, enter the abode of the male crab. Okay. And the bigger the male crab, the bigger the abode. Ah, I see. I guess that goes for humans as well, you know. I don't even Not have necessarily. a house. <laughs> I didn't say it was a linear relationship. <laughs> So basically this crab need the bigger crabs that will help their young survive, right? Right. Usually in the animal world, you don't see such pickiness up to this point. I guess that's what's allowed the crab to live so long, is that they keep breeding to be bigger and bigger. Right. And, and the interesting thing is if the female is already a larger size, then they tend not to be so picky because most likely they won't, won't be able to enter many males' homes anyway. So I guess there's sort of an upper limit on, <laughs> on right. these things. This was an interesting study carried out by Catherine de Vera at UCC. San Diego, and it's actually in a recent edition of Animal Behavior. All right, Frank, so just how poisonous are you? I'm America's secret weapon. (laughs) I think we should just send you to Iraq. (laughs) It would all be cleared up right away. (laughs) Wipe them out. Little does Al-Qaeda know that we have Frank. Just a little toxic gas, I guess. Well, if you're like a lot of frogs, you might emit a toxin on the surface of your skin. So you can't touch them. Right, right. And so if you look at these frogs, you die, or some of them have contained hallucinogens, right? Cool. Uh, but the interesting thing is that actually these frogs don't produce the toxin themselves. Really? No, they actually get it by eating uh, ants, which produce the toxin, and then they then secrete the toxin that they've eaten onto their skin. It's like no other animal I've heard of, actually. <laughs> So, uh, but the question was whether or not South American frogs also do the same thing, because they're also poisonous, and they also can't 
produce their own toxins. Mm -hmm. And so when a group of researchers led by Valerie Clerk, a graduate student uh, who's now at Cornell University, she basically tested frogs and arthropods from these South American frogs and uh, also tested the uh, little ants and saw that basically the frogs that were eating the ants got their poisons from the ants. Wow, so you got to be careful what you lick, huh? (laughs) (laughs) You are what you eat, I guess is the the motto here. (laughs) Wow. Ribbit. This was uh, published in a recent edition of our favorite journal, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, PNAS. So actually another story from our favorite journal. We have to at least one, you uh-huh. know, and then after a point, then we'd have to call the show Penis Grocks, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe secretly someone at the Academy thinks we're awesome. <laughs> I, I have no doubts whatsoever that absolutely nobody at the Academy listens to the show. <laughs> and, and if they do, why aren't they funding us? <laughs> so yeah, America's uh, heritage, you know. Right. <laughs> They're advisors to the uh, government on all sorts of issues. Although Feynman basically just said that their entire purpose was just electing other members. So. Wow. It's a beauty pageant. Yeah. <laughs> so, Professor Hongji Dai at Stanford and his graduate student Nadine Kam has shown that carbon nanotubes may have therapeutic uses for killing cancer. So what they've shown is that the cancer cells they were playing with had a large number of folate receptors, and they synthesized these nanotubes to have uh, folates attached to them so that the cancer cells would absorb them through some sort of endocytosis. Okay. And then what you can do after they've uh, ingested these carbon nanotubes is aim a near-IR radiation to them. It'll heat up and basically destroy the cancer cells. So basically targeting little explosion bombs that explode inside of them. Right. Trojan horse. (laughs) (laughs) So this is quite interesting. I mean, there's still a number of issues that they need to overcome. It turns out, like, once the cell's been destroyed, the nanotubes tend to aggregate and sort of precipitate out. Ah. And in the human body, that would be very difficult to get rid of. So you have basically solid particles right. in your tissue. But the next stage is to uh, actually try these in uh, animals and how far they can get. I, I guess I'll be waiting for uh, these little uh, micro bombs to come my way so I can start eating bacon again. Yeah, it's like, uh, maybe you can, like, not colonic, but... Uh... <laughs> I guess it's a cellular colonic, <laughs> in a way. Uh, a yearly uh, cleanup. All right, very cool. So, uh, once again, it's in our favorite journal. PNS. All right. Well, unfortunately, this one isn't from our favorite journal, but perhaps I should have chosen one from it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, our second favorite Uh, journal. Yeah, well, Nature Genetics. (laughs) Perhaps 57th on our list, but anyway. (laughs) So this actually has to do with yeast and repetitive DNA. Wow. You wouldn't get the Pillsbury Doughboy without a little yeast, you know. (laughs) Well, I I guess not, and you wouldn't be so squeezably soft and cuddly. Uh, So basically, yeast, repetitive DNA, and beer. Ah. (laughs) Have you ever wondered why some beer is actually a little more cloudy than others? Uh, it's unfiltered, right? Yeah, that actually has to do with it, but why are some beers actually a little bit easier to filter than others? Never quite figured it out. Well, it's actually because uh, in some particular strains of yeast, they actually clump together more. Oh. So, of course, you can filter them out. Right. Whereas in the cloudier suspensions, the yeast are sort of floating around and they're oh, more... Oh, so they're actually tinier suspensions. Yeah. So, it's actually interesting. And, in fact, why these yeasts clump together has just been implicated as being due to re- repetitive DNA. So, is it the more repetitive DNA they have, the more clumpier they are, or...? Yeah, so in fact, if they have more of a repeat of a certain gene called flow 1, mm-hmm. they actually wind up sticking together a lot stronger. 
So it's actually quite fascinating because it's one of the instances where repetitive DNA actually has sort of a utilitarian view. Right. Whereas in a lot of diseases, it actually winds up causing a lot of problems like in Huntington's and such. Uh-huh. Very fascinating work and actually shows that there is some utility to having these repetitive DNA sequences. I wonder if humans are clumpier if they have more repetitive <laughs> DNA than they're... <laughs> you know, I would hope so, but it might explain why women don't seem to be uh, clumping towards me. I'm, <laughs> I'm missing a lot of repeats. Uh, maybe I'll have to ask Santa for that this year. More repeats. So, again, this was fascinating work. It was done by geneticist Kevin Verstreppen in the lab of Gerald Fink at MIT and published in the recent edition of Nature Genetics. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You are listening to the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up next, Mr. John F. Brinster will join us to discuss Einstein's theology. So stay tuned. Science Show. Well, how did Professor Albert Einstein, the most renowned and respected mind of logic and reason of the century, view theology? How did the mind that forever changed man's view of the world reconcile science and religion, God and morality, and emotion and behavior? Well, joining us today is Mr. John F. Brinster to discuss some of these issues. Mr. Brinster is one of the few remaining people who knew and lived near Einstein for over a decade. Mr. Brinster graduated magna cum laude from Princeton University in 1943, and he is a member of the American Association for the Advancement of Science and was instrumental in expanding the study of neuroscience, molecular biology, and psychology at Princeton and other universities, and is also a supporting member of the Princeton Institute for Advanced Study. He has written the new novel, The Man Who Created God, which was written under his literary pseudonym, John F. Brain, and we'd like to thank you for joining us today on the program, Mr. Brinster. Thank you very much. Uh, well, it's certainly a pleasure to have you on the program, and uh, certainly a very fascinating topic here, uh, Einstein's views on uh, religion. I'm, I'm curious, actually, how did you actually know uh, Professor Einstein? I knew him soon after I graduated at Princeton. He was a member of the Princeton Institute for Advanced Study, which was not far from my uh, home on Mercer Road. And uh, he was well known for his walks daily from his home to the Institute. But I knew him in connection with various meetings, physics, symposia, and otherwise. And while most others were interested in his theory of relativity, I wanted to know what his mind uh, thought about religion. And that's the basis for my work. I see. And kind of fascinating. I mean, how did you come to be interested in Einstein's views on religion? Well, 
First off, practically all religious people made inquiry because they respected his great mind of reason. And he got many letters and had very many interviews about religion. And his practice was to write the answers to those letters on the back of envelopes in German and leave them for a secretary to answer. A lot of them are still around in, in his archives. And in general way, his answer was very consistent. In the decade or more over which I knew him and about him, his answers were always the same. And it was my interest to write this story. It's not a long scholarly work. It's satire, has drama, has a little intrigue, mystery, secret code, <laughs> motion. And the idea was to simply express his religion in a way that people could easily read it and understand it. I'm curious if maybe you can sum up maybe Einstein's theology. Well, his idea was not to learn about an imagined God, but a God of nature. He respected the transcendent forces of the universe of nature, and he objected to the imaginative side of religion. He was not an aggressive person. He was a very simple, very humble person. But he felt that man currently is taught not only about a personal God, but man also interprets the mind of God in a biblical uh, kind of ideology, which may not be applicable today. He obviously felt that despite all of the publication of different beliefs, and he felt there was quite a bit of conflict among different beliefs that had to be resolved in the course of time, felt that the human object is to understand fellow man and to deal with each other in a helpful way and to encourage peaceful coexistence. That was his basic pursuit. He was very much interested in fellow man. He made a lot of recommendations and suggestions to the government as to how to resolve problems. He wasn't quiet about that. He was even concerned with the use of the atomic bomb that he himself did the original work on. But the religion that comes from his belief is what I call a natural form of religion. He called uh, his religion cosmic and scientific. I understood it to be what I would call natural religion based on only in an independent, transcendent, say, God of nature. And that eliminates what he called the imaginative side of religion. He felt that faith was somewhat of a euphemism for imagination. And he didn't believe in the human soul. He didn't believe in immortality. And he felt that his form of religion would probably survive as humanity developed in the future. And, of course, neuroscience was not very far along during his time, but much of neuroscience since his time seems to support a lot of what he felt and believed, and I pursued that to some extent. The story that I wrote projects time 
about three decades into the future, and it incorporates a little bit of the projection of concepts, of uh, current concepts of neuroscience. And I thought that would be interesting. And I believe myself that in the long pull, his idea of how and what to believe would eventually be the way all men would believe in 100,000 years from now, hmm. if you can project. Was Einstein actually explicitly interested in the neurosciences at the time? He was only indirectly. You have to bear in mind that he was uh, very busy with his own ideas, and uh, following his great contribution to physics, and there were, there were a good many of them, he drifted into the affairs of mankind. He was very much interested in the United Nations, for example, and poverty and that sort of thing. And I tried to incorporate that a little bit in my book. But neuroscience was not very well developed. He was aware that emotion, which is a very important force with respect to religion, was probably strongly inherited from pre-human creatures. And the notion of religion, I think he felt, was a reflective kind of action with relatively short neural paths. But he felt that eventually the human mind would become more logical and more reasonable. And I think he felt, as I do, that is going on continuously. The original human mind developed the cortical portion in the process of emergence from animal form. And I believe that that process is slowly continuing. And I think he believed, as I did, that strong belief through the imaginative side of the mind capability may somewhat deter that process of developing logic and reason. And I think in the long pull, in order to avoid many of the problems, human problems, all over the world, a great deal more has to be learned uh, in the form of logic and reason. Most of the current social issues would be uh, differently interpreted in, under the Einstein type of religion. Mm -hmm. If you believe, for, for example, that the mind of the personal God, anthropomorphic type God is concerned with things like abortion, stem cell research, uh, gay marriage, and assisted suicide, uh, teaching of evolution, prayer in school, and all, all of the things that we're talking about today, the Einstein form of belief would see all these things a little bit differently. And I think that is the way the human mind is going to change. Mm. I've written a couple of books prior to this, which are non-fictional, and they represent pretty much the Einstein approach. Incidentally, this book is described in my website, which is simply jfbrain.com. It's an interesting thesis, but I'm, I'm curious because so much of logic and reason is kind of shunned in today's politics and society. How, where's the selective pressure for this uh, evolution of our hum humanity to come from? Well, if you go back to the original evolution of the simpler form of the mind, 
the mind that was formed when there was no prefrontal lobe, you have to ask the question as to how this was formed. Did somebody create it? Was there a great spirit that created it? I think the scientific belief is that this cortical section, which allowed man to think logically, to, to think judgmentally, to plan and do all of the creative activity that man has done, that all came about through the usage of the mind. And I think that will continue. And what I said before was that if you set up an imaginative God on which you rely for everything, it may deter the ongoing development of what I call the logical and judgmental mind. Mm. I think the, the world today is kind of a mixture of religious, conflicting religious beliefs and conflicting cultures. And one day I think we'll look back on all this and see that much of what Einstein believed would serve as the basis of ongoing mankind. You have to bear in mind that before a million or so years ago, there was no mind mm -hmm. in the universe at all, as far as we know. Mm -hmm. And that mind developed in a process which you can only attribute to nature. There was not even a notion of intelligence or a notion mm -hmm. of design. And the question is, was there any God before man? I doubt that very mm -hmm. much. Uh, well, those are some of the thoughts that are involved in this whole consideration, and I didn't want to get too deeply into the philosophy of it, but it's all expressed, I think, in the book, and that's why the title, The Man Who Created God. Mm, indeed. Um, well, I guess we are running slightly out of time, but I guess that, that might be a good place to try and wrap up if, the story behind it. Thank you very much. Okay, well... Um, we were just talking with Mr. John F. Brinster, who is the author of the new novel, The Man Who Created God, written under his literary pseudonym, John F. Brain. Mr. Brinster, again, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Crocs. Thank you for having me. All right, this is the Berkeley Grox Science Show you're listening to. Stay tuned in just a few minutes. We'll have the answer to last week's question of the week. Oh, well, I guess it would be nice.
right, we're back, and you're listening to the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, now it's the Intrepid Explorer with the answer to last week's question of the week. Yes, well, I'm the great intrepid explorer of the great British Empire, and I seem to have contracted a bit of a case of malaria. What do you know? All of these people with sickle cell anemia. So bloody great they are, they don't seem to get it as much. Well, why is it? Well, it turns out if you have just one copy of the sickle cell gene, not as much of a problem. Malaria resistance you get. Oh, I need some quinine. Hello, and I'm Kermit the Frog with this week's question of the week. You know, Miss P always gives me a tight squeeze and I need to get away sometimes. But I have some disguises, you know, like chameleons. Well, how they do that? Hmm, it's a mystery to me. But if you know or think you know, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you can hide a little longer. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. More music.